I'm wearing this. I'm wearing this joker. There's no doubt about it. It's awesome. Okay, so um, are you glad you're in church today? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord, huh? I mean, it's really great to get together with God's people. Um, are you ready to hear from the Word of God? Yeah. I mean, do you love the Bible? Say amen if you love the Bible. Amen. Are you thankful that God so loved us that He gave us His Word today? Yeah. Listen, if that's the case, let me do one other quick shout out. You need to make time to be with us for our Certainty Conference. Uh, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So on the 23rd, Sunday the 23rd, two weeks from today, we're going to kick it off with Sunday morning and then Sunday night through Wednesday night. And there'll be morning sessions and there'll be evening sessions and we'll have supper here in the gym. If you're coming from work and it's tough on your schedule to get the kids and I'll just come here and eat and we'll, we'll have church and all that sort of thing, and, and the questions and the issues we're going to be dealing with is the subject of the preservation of God's Word for us in the English language. That takes us down the road of what some people consider a controversy over English Bible versions. And I know that when you talk about that, there's a lot of well-intending, good-hearted Christian people who just think that those questions and those issues Maybe are interesting, maybe they're not as interesting, but certainly those are the questions that should be left to the scholars. And I'm here to tell you, those are the questions that are for us. Because you need to know with absolute certainty that the book that you hold in your hands is indeed the not only perfectly inspired Word of God, we would all say we believe God inspired His Word, but if He just inspired it and didn't do something to preserve it so that it didn't get messed with, over the last several thousand years. Well then, how do you really know what you have is really what God wants you to have? And when you look at different English Bible versions and when you find specific places, and oh yes, there are many more places than you might think where the different English versions read completely differently. And not just differently that it nuances it one way or another, but they actually contradict well, two things that are different can't be the same, and they certainly can't both be right. And so it's clear what the stand of this church has always been, and we just want to clear off a space and prove it and solidify it in your mind. A lot of you have been a part of this church for a long time. You've got no beef with whatever translation of the Bible you read, but you really don't know why. Uh, this is a conference for you. Some of you are new to our church, and you don't even know what I'm talking about, and you think this might be the weirdest subject ever. Uh, if you would be willing, besides the jacket, uh, you would be willing, he puts on a weird jacket, talks about a weird subject, I don't know, I don't know about this place. If you would be willing to have an open heart and an open mind and just come and see if you can't possibly learn something, I think, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I know that when I first entered into this subject of study, it was presented like this at a church, I had no idea. I was faithfully reading and studying my New American Standard Bible and, and, and growing, Absolutely, and somebody came and began to talk like this, and I actually said, I'm going to show up and I'm going to pay attention because I'm going to prove that that's the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> well, I sincerely went after the subject to prove it's the dumbest thing ever and, well, obviously became convinced that it actually was true. Uh, and God began to really help me to learn and to grow as a result of that. So please, please plan every way possible to clear your schedule. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I know it makes for a heavy week. I know it's a big deal, but we only do it once a year, and it's really worth your time and worth your effort. So uh, September, two weeks from today, we'll start the Certainty Conference. 
Okay, if you've been following along with us, we're studying the Bible in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter number 7. And today we're going to be wrapping up chapter number 7. We've been six weeks coming through this chapter, and, and lately, and frequently actually, we have been talking about how Paul keeps reminding us how much better it is to be single than to be married in the context of ministry. And if you are a married person and have been hearing Paul through the Word of God say those things, maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe you're tired of hearing people say that it's better to be single than to be married. You're pretty happy being married and you're doing a good job of it and and all that sort of thing. And maybe you're just thinking that, you know, we're talking about that because, well, it's just a setup so that the single adults feel better about themselves. <laughs> no, that's not what it is. Of course not. The Apostle Paul, without question, genuinely believes that it was better for ministry effectiveness. Paul would have been married, and most certainly he was single. He knew both sides, and, and he understood that there's less distractions in life when the only person you have to be responsible for is yourself. But I want you to understand as we wrap up chapter 7 today that clearly there is a balance. And we see that balance, and we'll see it as we read through these verses in a minute. That if anyone chooses to be married, he repeats over and over again, certainly they are free to do so. And that is exactly why every time Paul says, well, let me give you my judgment, it's actually better, I think, if you're single He'll always follow it up with, but, you know, if you get married, I mean, that's good too. (laughs) And the reason he does that, he has to do that, is because that's exactly what God said, right? Let me just draw your attention. Proverbs 18 and verse 22, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Uh, In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 14, notice this. It says, I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary, to speak reproachfully. In other words, it actually is God's will for many people to be married. No question about it. So today we're going to conclude this section, and we're going to conclude it with what I think is just a beautiful picture from the Word of God. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to start reading chapter 7, verse number 36 to the end of the chapter. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. A a beautiful picture in the Word. Okay, that's kind of an unusual passage of Scripture, y'all. And I didn't read the wrong passage of Scripture. Okay, uh, but we're going to study it. And so we actually put a title on this message, and I'm, I'm emphasizing that phrase in verse number 39. We will explain this. Hang on. Uh, Marriage in the Lord. 
marriage in the Lord. Are, are you guys ready? Are you ready? Maybe after everything that's happened, we just take a second and pray, and then, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, bless the reading and the hearing and the application of your word. Help us, Lord, to see what you want us to see today. We pray in Christ's name. Thank you. Amen. The thing we're going to start off looking at, I'm calling a past practice, a past practice. This is a story that is given to us. It is a story of a man and his virgin. Uh, okay, so we need to start by defining some terms, and this is in your notes. The virgin is a woman who has never been married. It's just that simple. A virgin is a woman who's never been married, and we're not taking the time to go back and look, but that is based on the biblical definition of what a marriage is, something we would have studied back in chapter number six. You can go and look at our previous messages if you want to get some of that detail. A virgin is a woman who has never been married, and the man is the father or older brother, the one who would be responsible for, and the phrase that is given is given her, giving her in marriage. So the man gives the virgin in marriage or doesn't give her in marriage. Uh, there is a common, in my opinion, false interpretation of this passage of Scripture. And the common or other interpretation of this passage of Scripture would be to apply the man and his fiance, not his daughter. Uh, the idea would be is this is his uh, girlfriend he's going to marry, right? And that understanding, that interpretation, uh, I believe to be false. We'll see in a minute why. Um, it is so prevalent that even a lot of the newer English Bible versions actually with that bias wrote it into the text of their English Bible versions. So, for example, the very widely popular English Standard Version, the ESV, the reading of this passage goes like this. This is the ESV. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, if you just took the time to look closer at that section in the English Standard Version, and very, very similarly written in the New International Version, for example, uh, that seems a little ridiculous. So you would be saying then that if he decides not to marry her, but yet he keeps her as his betrothed forever without marrying her, uh, he's going to keep her strung along without ever closing the deal? And that's better? Is that, is that what they're trying to say? Uh, oh, is it better to have your betrothed and then just call it off? Is that really, and why? Because, because she's too old, which is really the reference of has passed the flower of her age. Uh, oh, honey, sorry, we waited too long. Uh, you're getting on in years. No. <laughs> I mean, is that really what they think is happening here? Can I just say, you ought to be interested in which Bible version you read, amen? You ought to be interested. Okay, so giving her means exactly what you understand it to mean. But let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, and 
the young single ladies will appreciate this. It doesn't mean necessarily that the parents choose for you whom you will marry. And I hear a amen. amen. Okay, so it can mean that. I mean, that has happened, you know. I mean, my grandparents, when they emigrated from Macedonia to the United States in the early part of the 20th century, they had an arranged marriage. Uh, my grandfather had to go down to the docks, I guess in New York, and pick up his fiance he had never met before that his parents set up, and they ultimately lived their whole lives happily loving each other. But at the beginning, you know, it was, it was probably a little weird. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of cultures today around the world where people just arrange marriages and because if we understand biblically that love is a choice, not an emotion, well, actually it can work out. But that is not necessarily what 1 Corinthians 7 is saying. But rather, giving her simply means that the parents approve of the marriage. That's all it means. The parents approve of the marriage. In other words, this man could choose to give his daughter or sister, as the case might be, in marriage, or he could choose not to. And either is completely acceptable. It says in verse 36, let them marry. The them in verse 36 would be the daughter and the other guy. If it's okay with dad, well, let him get married. Let him get married. Uh, I want you to know, like I mentioned at the beginning, in verse 40, Paul says, She's happier if she so abide after my judgment. Paul firmly holds to what he calls my judgment, that it's always better to be single than to be married. Well, because Paul was hardcore about ministry. And especially if the daughter is older, I mean, maybe it is better if you've made it this far to just dedicate your life to serving the Lord. And Paul, the Spirit-filled apostle, as we see in verse 40, I think also that I have the Spirit of God, he has an opinion. He has a preference. But he could not teach that preference as doctrine, that you must remain single, because it's not doctrine. So before we move on from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you must be aware of this fact you can serve the Lord single or married. Obviously, you can serve the Lord single or married. There's no question that verses 36, 37, and 38, they represent the custom of that day. They represent a past practice, something that was common in their day. By the way, Paul does this from time to time, as we will see eventually when we get to chapter number 11, where he talks about women having their head covered and men not having their head covered, and we'll get to all that in due time. But this in particular case certainly is a custom that they would have been familiar with, and Paul addresses what he has to address within the context of what they were doing. So I asked myself this week as I you know, joyfully look forward to this study time, thinking about this passage of Scripture, which is unusual, um, where in the Bible, where else can I go to learn more about this particular custom? And so, if you will, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. And I'm going to give you just a quick summary of what is a fairly long chapter. We don't have time to read it, but you can just kind of be glancing. Uh, it is the story of a young girl named Rebecca who ultimately goes off to marry a young man named Isaac, okay? 
Let me just summarize it for you. The story begins in the first four verses with Abraham. And Abraham takes his servant and he sends his servant out into the world. And he says he wants him to find a wife for his son Isaac. Now I want you to know that he did not do that because Isaac was such a loser he couldn't find his own. He did it because that was the custom of that day. That's how they did it honorably. Okay? And so the story continues down in about verse 10 to verse 14. What you see is that the servant, he ventures out, and, and what he's doing before the Lord is he's praying for some specific signs. He's asking the Lord to show him a woman that has this characteristic and that characteristic so that he will know when God's in it, when God has led him to the right girl. And, and listen, guys, this is not such an old custom, is it? I mean, guys do this all the time, don't we? I mean, guys, to this very day, I don't care what dispensation and how much doctrine you think you know, if you're looking for the right girl, you're praying that God will bring her to you, right? And she's got to have some characteristics. I mean, whether she be beautiful or kind or loving or hardworking, a servant, uh, funny, uh, whatever those things are. And can I say, by the way, odds are you're not getting all of those characteristics. <laughs> You're praying for those things, right? And that's what the servant is doing. So moving down to verse 15 and about verse 20, ultimately he comes across the path where he meets this young girl, Rebecca. And she meets all the requirements of the things that she's looking for. In fact, to make the connection back to 1 Corinthians 7, specifically in verse 16, we know she's an unmarried girl. She is called a virgin. But the bulk of this chapter, moving forward from, say, verse 29 and 30 down to about verse 50 or so, is that story of interacting about how are you, know, are you willing to come and potentially marry the son of my master. And before anything official can happen, what they have to do is they have to go back and get permission from her family. And so they go back to the family and they meet Laban. Now Laban is not her father. Laban is her older brother. And in their family, Laban obviously is the responsible one for caring for these kinds of issues in that family. And so Laban is the one who's going to assess this situation. And so they explain the whole story to Laban and praise the Lord, eventually Laban says, okay, I'm cool with it. But I want you to notice in verse number 58, if you glance at verse number 58, the ultimate decision is still Rebecca's. I mean, nobody's forcing her to go off with this servant. They ask her, will you go with this man? And she says, yes, I'll go. So she has free will. And then the last section of the chapter from verse 59 down to the bottom, ultimately Rebecca goes with the servant. They travel back to meet her new husband, Isaac, and they live happily ever after. Amen. And, and that's the story. This literally is some, in a, another example of how God used this, how they used this in their culture at that time. But this is not just, this is what I want you to understand, this is not just some practice from the past. Because even in our Western society, generally speaking, you got to know it's still a good idea, Right? for a young lady to get permission from her parents before she goes off and marries somebody, especially if you are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Especially that. Because certainly a Christian father will know enough 
at least to make sure the young man is also a Christian or else he won't give his approval. Let her marry whom she will only in the Lord, right? 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So if the boy's not a believer, if he's not a spirit-filled believer, if he's not someone who can actually love and lead his daughter, then he has the right to not approve. And can I say to you, Christian young ladies, a Christian dad does not want his daughter to grow up and live her whole life as a spinster. He just wants his daughter to marry right. That's all. He wants her to be happy. And by the way, that's his God-given role to protect her, to watch out for her. And if you are one of the young ladies in this category, let me just say to you that you have enjoyed that protection and watch care of your father or maybe older brother or guardian. Uh, many, many times in your life. Man, don't bail now in front of this decision. It's just too big of a decision, right? So more than just being a past practice or some practical good advice, which certainly it is, I want you to see something even greater. It also points to what is our second point in our study today, a prophetic picture. And we're going to hang here for a while in Genesis chapter 24 and get a closer look at some of the details there. And so with that in mind, really, if you haven't yet, please open your Bibles and let's look in Genesis 24. Because with all of Paul's judgment about singleness being better for ministry and less troubles and less distractions, which is true, let us not forget that our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured in the Bible as a marriage. It's pictured as a marriage, right? Ephesians chapter 5, the marriage chapter ends with verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And all of that stuff about the characteristic of the wives in a marriage and the characteristic of the husbands in a marriage are all really just a picture painted so that we can understand our role, church, in our relationship with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about it. Since we get in Christ at salvation, our salvation is the ultimate marriage in the Lord, is it not? I mean, your salvation experience places you in Christ, and it is likened unto a marriage. So if you are to marry in the Lord, well, we can take the picture of, well, that's your salvation experience, right? Only in the Lord, verse 39 back in 1 Corinthians 7. And do you know that there's a lot of things that we can learn about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ only in the context as we learn about life in our marriages. We learn about God the Father as we become fathers and parents of little children and the love that we have for our children. There's things we learn of the Lord walking with Him through all of the experiences of life. But this particular Old Testament example, Laban giving away Rebekah in marriage, is actually an amazing prophetic picture for us today. And maybe, I wonder, just maybe the reason why Paul included that in 1 Corinthians 7, just to drive us back here so that we could see this in Genesis 24. 
Because listen, y'all, hidden throughout the pages of the Old Testament are amazing pictures of your salvation experience and understanding the prophetic pictures and types in the Bible opens up so much more than just a simple reading of some historical story that happened. So let's begin, and the first thing, draw the picture. Let's help draw the picture for you, okay? The Bible is a picture book. It is a book full of pictures. I don't care how old you get and how mature you are in the Lord, we are still referred to as little children. And we still can crawl up on our Heavenly Father's lap and He's going to open up the great picture book and show us pictures of truths for the entirety of our lives. And that's what we see here. We see prophetic pictures and types. Those are people and places and things that represent something spiritual that maybe otherwise we would have a hard time fully understanding. So who are the players in this story? I think a lot of you can track with this. We'll move fairly quickly. I know you have a lot of blanks in your notes. We'll get through them quickly. First and foremost, we have Abraham, and Abraham represents God the Father. Obviously, he represents God the Father. He's called Father Abraham, right? Not just in the kids' song, you know, right arm, left arm. I mean, that's all cool, but he's actually called Father Abraham in the Scriptures, Luke 16, some other places. Uh, He is the father of the people who become the nation of Israel. Oh, and he's the father of Gentile peoples right through Ishmael. And if you go to Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, he's also the father of everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, the church. So Abraham really is referred to as the father of all three groups of people, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. That's who he is and that. Therefore, when you read stories of Abraham, think about how God can teach you about God the Father. Well, if Abraham is the father, then his son Isaac is Jesus Christ. Isaac is Jesus Christ. And if you took the time, and many of you are already familiar, flip left a page or two in your Bible. Genesis chapter 22 is that famous story where God tells Abraham to take his only son Isaac up Mount Moriah and kill him and sacrifice him unto the Lord after the old age experience of giving him the son and promising him that his seed would be like the stars of heaven and the dust of the earth and the the sand that's on the seashore, and he only had one son, and God wants him back. And Abraham, you know the story, is about to kill him, and God stops his hand, and there's a ram with his horns caught in a thicket, and he replaces Isaac. And all of Genesis chapter 22 is just a beautiful picture, many of you already know this, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. God taking his own son and sacrificing him for us. So Abraham, who represents God the Father, is going to sacrifice his own son Isaac, who represents Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament starts getting much more interesting because even Mount Moriah, where he literally did that thing, is actually the location of Calvary. It's actually the location of Calvary. So that sacrifice makes it clear. Well, back to Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sends his eldest servant. Well, the eldest servant that he sends out is then the Holy Spirit. He sends forth his Holy Spirit. And if you want to dig a little deeper and know a little bit more about who this, spirit, who this servant is, you can go back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 2. He actually has a name. His name is Eleazar. And Eleazar is considered the steward 
of Abraham's house. That means he is not just honored, he's the most trusted. And the name Eleazar literally means helper of God. Helper of God. That's who he is. So what's going on in the Genesis 24 story, even as we get it kicked off, what we have is the story that the father sends the spirit to go find a bride for his son. This is the story of Genesis chapter 24. The father, that's good, I'm going to say that again. The father sends the spirit to go find a bride for his son. Sounded familiar? Sounded familiar? Okay, so where is he supposed to go? Well, in verse number four, he's only to go, Abraham sends him to my country, to my kindred. He wants him to go to his people, right? And who does he find? He finds Rebecca, and it gives Rebecca's ancestry and says that she's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. In other, Rebecca ends up, in other words, Rebecca ends up being Abraham's grandniece, right? And so that's who he finds. And of course the father sends the spirit to go find a bride for his son among his own people because in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, we are to marry in the Lord, in the Lord. So now that we got all that together, it's pretty clear, right, who Rebecca is. Rebecca's the church. Rebecca represents the church. That's who she is. And her older brother Laban is the one who gives her away to the servant of Isaac. And it's interesting because if you compare Scripture with Scripture and you get to Genesis 25 and verse number 20, we see that Laban is called a Syrian. Laban the Syrian. Well, that's very interesting. That means that he's a Gentile. And that means that she's a Gentile. And that means that she becomes the Gentile bride of Isaac, the picture of Jesus Christ. You know that the church of Jesus Christ is a Gentile bride, right? And we know that because blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now there are Jewish people who have received Jesus as their Messiah, their Lord and their Savior, but they are no longer Jews in the Lord's eyes just as we are no longer Gentiles in the Lord's eyes. We are now the body of Christ. We are no longer Jew or Gentile. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. And so they become a part of the church. But that is important because Rebecca is that Gentile bride. That's exactly who she represents. This picture is becoming very, very clear. The overwhelming majority of born-again Christians throughout church history are not of Jewish descent. So then the servant explains the plan. And, and this explaining of the plan is, is before Rebecca at some level, but then before Laban and the family. And so this whole thing becomes a marriage proposal. And you know, what a, you know what the marriage proposal really is? The marriage proposal pictures for us just very simply, that's evangelism. That's what you do every time you take the time to go out and talk to somebody, how they can come to know personally the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, maybe put in parentheses, he can become their bridegroom. And when they receive that invitation for themselves, then they can be saved, right? So this is the proposal that's given. It's the proposal of marriage, and it, it really is a picture of our evangelism. But like we saw earlier, Rebecca has free will. And this is really important. Laban asks Rebecca, will you go with this man? In verse 58. And she says, I'll go. I'll go. 
But it's greater than even that because it's not just Laban, the Syrian, who doesn't have a particular role in this direct application to our salvation. But go all the way back to verse number 8 of Genesis 24. And Abraham is telling the servant the ground rules of what he's going to do as he goes into the world to find this wife. And he says, And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. God the Father guarantees your free will. This whole idea that God has determined who will be a part of the bride and who won't be a part of the bride, and you don't have anything to say about it regardless of what you think you have to say about it, you don't have anything to say about it. This idea that it's sold under the guise that this is what all the reformers believed during the Reformation, so we call it Reformed theology. I'm sorry, it's a heresy. And even in picture and even in type, in the Old Testament, as old as Genesis 24, God the Father himself, pictured in Abraham, makes it clear, if she doesn't want to go, that's fine. Because you know what God wants? He wants people who want him. That's who he wants. Do you want him? I mean, you may be here and have never made that decision. He wants you to want him. He doesn't force you to do anything. And if you don't want him, do you know what hell is full of? People who said, no, thank you. Oh, and the devil and his angels. But people who said, yeah, no. Nah. And the Lord says, okay, I will respect your wish. You don't want me? Okay. Breaks my heart, but okay. I respect your wish. God's a gentleman. God's a gentleman. Finally, she's brought into Sarah's tent. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who I don't have in your notes, represents the nation of Israel, right? The wife of God the Father. We saw this some weeks ago. Uh, just like the wild olive branch is grafted into the natural olive tree, that's in Romans chapter 11, meaning that our salvation in Jesus Christ is not actually fully complete until we actually have that face-to-face -face physical union meeting Jesus Christ. So we are saved spiritually right now and assured of that guarantee, but it doesn't completely fulfill itself until we see him face to face. That's an important part to understand. So all of this drawing of the picture should help you to realize Genesis 24 is much more interesting than just an old Jewish tale, wouldn't you say? Okay, we've drawn the picture, now let's draw the application. And we're going to hone in specifically in verses 61 to 66. And so looking at these things, I want you to notice that the journey back to Isaac, after she gets approval, after she says that she will go, after she leaves Laban, the journey back to Isaac pictures our lives after salvation. It pictures our lives after salvation. We willingly say yes to the marriage proposal of Jesus Christ. You go back and look at verse 58. Wilt thou go with this man? I will go. That's your salvation experience. Now she's on a journey. Now she's going to go. She hasn't met Isaac physically yet like we haven't seen Jesus Christ physically yet. And the way that she goes, we find Rebecca immediately sets out on a new path. And this new path 
is led by the servant, the Holy Spirit. Because she doesn't know the way to go. And in your Christian life, friends, you don't know the way to go either. You have to follow the path that is led for you by the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, do we know how the Holy Spirit of God leads us? By the way, it's pretty clear it's in the Word of God. So it's important that we have the right Word of God. It's important that we study the Word of God. It's important that we obey the Word of God. Why? Because otherwise the servant is leading us on this path to meet our bridegroom and We're like over here wandering in the blueberries or something. No, we have to get on the right path. We have to follow the way. Rebecca doesn't know where to go. She's going somewhere she's never been before. She's got to follow the right way, right? And that comes to us through his word. Man, look at verses 62 and 63. I'm just going to read it. This is good. In 61, she says that she followed the man and she went his way. 62, notice, and Isaac came from the way of the well Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. You know what that is? That's Jesus Christ waiting to meet his bride. He's watching. There is nothing more important. He paid the ultimate price to purchase his bride, because of his great love. And don't you know, he is anxious to bring us home. He is anxious to bring us home. And then finally seeing Isaac, well, that pictures the rapture of the church. Verse number 64, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off of her camel man she was off just like that a picture as we will be off we will see jesus come through the the clouds and we will be up and gone and with him in that instant that's a picture of the rapture of the church that's first thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17 in a moment in a twinkling of an eye it's all going to happen very quickly and we will be taken up If you have not yet died physically, you go up alive. If you have passed away physically, you will meet us in the air and we will all together forever be with the Lord. But that ain't all, y'all. Verse 65. For she had said unto the servant, she had said, this is something that had been going on all along the journey. She'd been saying to the servant, what man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, it's my master. Therefore, she took a veil and covered herself. You know what that is? The life of a Christian walking in the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit is a life of constantly interacting and saying, will you tell me more about him? Will you tell me just a little more about him? What's he like? What things does he like? What does he do? What does he want? What does he expect? What about this? What are... Man, that's our Christian walk. It's interacting with the Holy Spirit of God through His Holy Word to give us more and more insight to know our future bridegroom even better all along the way. But y'all, we cannot go home today without understanding. In verse 66, we have the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 tells us clearly we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 66, when they finally met him, it says, and the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. Listen, I want you to notice. The Holy Spirit will give account of your life to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will give account of your life to Jesus Christ. The servant, not you, not Rebecca, the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. The Holy Spirit does the reporting that day. I think we have a disordered view of what the judgment seat of Christ is going to look like. I think we have this weird Hollywood impression or idea, I don't know, that, that we'll somehow stand before him or fall at his fate and just cowering and, and feeling like we have to come up with some sort of an answer for these God-sized questions about all of our failures. And if that fear motivates you to clean up your life, well, okay, but I don't really think that's what the judgment seat of Christ is going to look like. And based on this revelation... I think it's pretty clear. When that happens, what's going to happen? We're not going to have anything to say at all. The Holy Spirit, who, oh, by the way, lives in you, Christian, and is with you every step of your life from the moment you said yes to Jesus Christ until the rapture of the church. He is with you everywhere you go. He knows every word you've ever said. He's known everything you've ever cast your eyes on, every work you've ever done, every good and every bad thing, every point of obedience and disobedience. The Holy Spirit knows every single thing that you have ever done because you are on this journey together with Him. And when that day of reckoning comes... That reckoning, that accounting is going to be given back to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. The one whose testimony he knows will be accurate. Quit worrying about what your excuse might be. There'll be no time for talking that day. He will give the account. That is your marriage in the Lord. <laughs> That's your marriage in the Lord, and it is a beautiful thing. It gives our lives joy, but not only that, it gives our lives purpose. And we are on that journey today, and we will meet Jesus Christ face to face if you've received him as your Lord and Savior. And, and by the way, he is just as excited about it as you are. But when that meeting takes place, there will be an accounting. So as we close, will you just consider today when that accounting takes place, what will be reported of you? What will be reported of you? And if there's something you need to get right, will you do that today? Let's pray together.